I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty. Does American conservatism still provide a home for liberty-minded ideas? Looking at the state of the modern post-Trump Republican Party, as well as the intellectual centers of gravity among the American right, the picture's rather discouraging. To get a better sense of where the right is now, and how liberalism fits or doesn't within it, it's important to look backwards. What's the American right traditionally looked like? How has that changed? What lessons can we learn as we worry about where the right has ended up today? To discuss all that, I'm joined by my friend Paul Matsko. He's an historian of American politics and author of The Radio Right, how a band of broadcasters took on the federal government and built the modern conservative movement from Oxford University Press. We explore the nature of the right and whether it even makes sense to think of it as a unified ideological perspective. We talk about the origins of the Goldwater, Buckley, Reagan, New Right, and about whether it was ever as committed to individual and economic freedom as many today imagine it was. We dig into the question of libertarianism or classical liberalism's place in the conservative right coalition and ask if any place remains or whether it's possible to regain one. History often complicates convenient narratives. This couldn't be more true of the stories we in the liberty movement like to tell ourselves about American conservatism. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And stick around to the end to learn how you can become a supporter of Reimagining Liberty and get every episode two weeks early as well as access to our fun Discord community. One of the stories that you hear quite often today, especially from people among the never-Trump Republicans, but also among a lot of libertarians committed to continuing to work chiefly with the Republican Party, is that the rise of Trumpism, populism, a liberalism and a lot of the real ugliness that we've seen on the right over the last five or six or seven years is something of a turning away from what conservatism in America and the American right has really been about, that it really was the the Buckley, Reagan, maybe Goldwater version of, of conservative values, a more classical liberal limited government pro-free enterprise approach and that trumpism is is a betrayal of that but that that old right more palatable to the liberty movement version can come back you know that this is this is an anomaly it'll go away and the old one will come back and so therefore we should stick it out with the right is that true does does is it the case that the american right has largely been that Goldwater, Reagan, Buckley, or has the right, I guess, historically looked more like what we see from Trumpism today? Yeah, it's a it's a great complicated question, which means it's fun. And I, I, let's parse a few of the assumptions that are kind of baked into the question. So first of all, we have to ask, well, is Trumpism qualitatively different from the historical right? And this is a, a question that you can you can look at what people were saying in the historical right versus today about their ideology. And you can kind of test that. And it also asks, okay, well, how has that relationship, how has the relationship between different strains of conservatism changed over time? Because conservatism has always been composed of many threads throughout its history. It's never been a, a single unitary concept. And then also you have to ask, well, is that an accurate definition of what Buckley and Reagan stood for, right? Is the way we remember Buckley and Reagan now, is that 
actually accurate? Does it represent what they did during their lifetimes, during their careers, actually believed and did? So it's, I I mean, take those one at a time. So first, I think we have to remember that history is a study of continuity and change and which you emphasize, whether you emphasize the continuity between two events or two people or the change, the difference between them is a question of political utility. And so which you emphasize, whether you want to say, hey, look, uh, Donald Trump's policies are very similar to Joe Biden's policies, whether you emphasize the way in which they are similar, because there are similarities between them on a variety of issues, or whether you emphasize how different these two uh, presidents are, uh, often comes down to what's useful for your current political project, the legislation you support, the policies you support, uh, the concerns about reelection in two years or four years. Um, and that's always been true, and that's definitely true when it comes to the history of the right. There has been a conscious um, – mainstreaming of the right by participants in the right. Uh, That means shearing off some of the uh, sketchier, more embarrassing aspects of right-wing ideology in the mid-20th century. And that was done with intent, with purpose. Um, I mean, a a lot of what people remember about the history of the right, this idea that uh, in the, you know, so so maybe I should lay out what this narrative is. So the narrative is that, out of a kind of inchoate stew of concerns about the New Deal in the 1930s, concerns about anti-communism post-World War II, uh, out of worries about the global economy and the, the structure of, 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 the, of the markets um, after World War II, came together this coalition of sober, responsible, intellectually uh, respectable people like William F. Buckley and 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 Russell Kirk and and other thinkers. It was a movement of intellectuals that forged together these different strains of concern and built the tripod that is the new right. And that tripod stands on three legs. It stands on um, uh, a kind of limited government, laissez-faire. Uh, is is one leg anti-communism in a pretty robust foreign policy, lots of interventionism, American imperialism from a uh, from a libertarian perspective. That's the second leg. And then social conservatism, uh, Buckley's Catholic, Catholic conservatism, kind of proto new Christian right activism for the third. And that's the tripod out of which is built a responsible, sober, serious conservative movement. That's the story that gets told. It gets told in books by folks like George Nash, uh, who wrote um, the conservative intellectual movement in America since 1945. Um, the, the problem with this story is that it is a story, and it's not the only story that gets told. And that story leaves out a lot, leaves out lots of people, leaves out lots of beliefs and ideologies that those three legs is are missing something. They're missing folks. They're missing influences. Uh, so, so. Just to quote a little bit from Nash, Nash talks about conservatism as a, quote, movement of ideas, and the men who came up with those ideas are the heroes of the tale, and they were the architects, to use his language of the right. By contrast, the people he doesn't talk about in his book um, are those, quote, engaged in the hurly-burly of everyday politics, the extremists of the right who were, quote, energetic but whose contribution to conservatism as an intellectual force was negligible. So he's very open. He's leaving people out. And these are radicals. They're embarrassing. 
sometimes for good cause. They legitimately are embarrassing uh, because of their racism and, and the like. But my, my point here is that Nash, who is a um, – he's a participant in the conservative movement. He's kind of a descendant, if you will, of Buckley, is interested in fashioning – a vision of where the right came from that is politically useful when he writes this book and politically useful for the movement going forward. Uh, And uh, we don't have to believe that. I mean, I think that that that, that's involved in the collective forgetting of all the scuzzy stuff, the extent to which the right was very much involved in the racial politics of the mid 20th century support for segregation later on support for South African apartheid uh, opposition to the free speech movements of the 1960s. All of that is as much a part of the story of the origins of the right as the stuff that goes into the tripod. There's a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, leg even. Or maybe we'll just put it this way to continue the metaphor. Instead of a a stool with three legs, it's a chair with four legs, and we're just pretending that the fourth leg doesn't exist. Is it wrong then to be thinking about the American right? I mean, as a thing, like right now, so I started this question off by saying, what what is the what is the right in America actually been? What is it now? We talk a lot about there was a job posting, I think it was with the the Washington Post that people were sharing on Twitter this morning, um, saying they were looking for a reporter based out of Austin, Texas, to write stories trying to understand the American right. And so, presumably, this would be, uh, you know, more in the long media trope of going to rural diners and hearing what these people have to like writing down what these you know these odd people have to say from the perspective of, you know, the the cultural elites and city cosmopolitans and so on. But we do talk about like there is a right and there's a left. And I know that, you know, people on the left get frustrated with conservative politicians and conservative pundits acting as if the left is a single thing. You know, like if you, if you delve into arguments on the left, it's like, it's much more fractured than it, you know, than like say Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson tells you it is. That there are profound disagreements, acrimonious disagreements between, say, mainstream Democrats, neoliberals, labor people, analytic Marxists, and so on. And they, you know, basically see each other as all enemies. Um, and and so it's it's wrong to talk about the left. Does the same apply to the right or is there a, I guess, unifying theme that we can say, well, OK, yes, they disagree on a lot of details, but ultimately like this is the thing that the right is about. Yeah. So it does, I mean it applies to both right and left. I mean it, and I think it is important to issue this note of like caution that this is also messy. I mean – our our terms like right and left are haphazard and arbitrary. It, it's a reference to which side of the French National Assembly in the post-revolutionary era people happen to sit on. And so, you know, the, the it, think of like Congress and people sitting in their seats and it's Democrats and Republicans on one side or the other. They they just sort themselves. It's not a formal seating assignment. And by the happenstance of the way people sat in the French National Assembly, they said, well, that's the left side of the assembly. That's where the uh, kind of proto-socialists are sitting. And on the right side is where the monarchists, the ones who want to bring back the, you know, uh, the um, the old, you know, descendants of Louis and then Napoleon's descendants and, and restore a French monarchy. 
um, that's where that comes from. It's the it's an arbitrary designation about where people sat in the French legislature. Interestingly, it turns out our proto-libertarians, people like um, Friedrich Bastiat, he sat on the left side of the legislature with the uh, with the so proto-socialists uh, because he had more in common with them than he did with the monarchists who hated free markets and hated, you know, hated expanded suffrage and who, you know, were very illiberal. Um, so it is, all this is arbitrary left and right are kind of, uh, they're useful concepts because, uh, it, otherwise it, 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 you get lost in this morass of little splinter groups. So they have meaning because, but almost because we prescribe them meaning, um, but it's important not to overinterpret them. Like, Left and right are just labels of convenience. Now, as far as the right and its um, uh, mixed nature, yeah, it's absolutely true that I think we have to uh, remember that it's not it, – often the way we talk about in political discourse is as if there is this, yeah, unitary um, homogenous thing called the right. And if you're not part of the right, then you are um, simplistically outside of it. So you, the whole di- the conversation about like are you a rhino? You're either a good Republican or you're a Republican in name only, which is bizarrely binary um, when the reality is that people have views that cross a range of, of, of you know, views on policy, um, their ideological influences. Turning choices into a simplistic binary is useful for political infighting, but it's not very useful as a description of the influence on a movement, which tends to be a lot more heterogeneous. Um yeah, so I, I think people tend to exaggerate the binary nature of, of politics, again, for the utility. I mean, as far as the right and its many complicated uh, uh, influences, um, you know, I think you can look to – I think it's important to remember that in as much as there is some sort of movement, a thing that, that, that you need some unity for a movement to work. So uh, – for that to happen, though, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not as if someone sat down, some philosopher, uh, you know, a philosopher king, William F. Buckley. <laughs> he didn't sit down and say, okay, here are these views that make sense in like uh, a, uh, concerns about the fears of, of global communism really fit super well with the uh, concerns about uh, a command, a centralized command economy during World War II and the New Deal. And those just go naturally together. And ergo, we were constructing this very logical, self-perpetuating system of ideas out of which flow certain policies. Instead, it's an artifact of the cultural and political pressures of a particular moment in time that push previously even antagonistic um, systems and groups and ideas together. Uh, and as times change, the logic of that fusion I have to talk about fusionist conservatism, the way in which these ideas were fused in the mid 20th century, that fusion stops, can stop making sense because these circumstances change. And it never really, I mean, if you just think about it as a, a, a historically, the idea that robust anti-communism, a, a big U.S. military that's fighting communism abroad, maintaining military base, hundreds of bases all over the globe. The idea that that works well with limited government at home, laissez-faire government, you know, uh, unlimited government abroad, but limited government at home. These are not the naturally uh, amenable ideas. 
They might have made sense in the 1945 to 1955 moment when all these ideas were coalescing, but that's because of the particulars of that moment and not because of some natural coherence between these ideas. That's a point that I have made in the past when I've written about the kind of the the fundamental or ultimate incompatibility of libertarianism as placing individual liberty as the highest political aim and conservatism. And it is striking how much you look back at the 50s and 60s and the the alliance between libertarians at the time and conservatives at the time against communism and and how much even like the conservative commitment to free enterprise the libertarians were committed to free enterprise because of you know a commitment to economic liberty to individual liberty a recognition of markets as an engine of of growth and progress and so on the the conservatives their commitment seems to have more to do with like an ideological opposition to to communism like the communists hate free enterprise were in favor of it and then the it's not like these people were pro individual liberty in the slightest you know like it was the conservatives and especially the um, executive branch during that time were intensely reactionary about pro liberty changes at home and you know and arguably the the embrace of you know, like the FBI cracking down on white supremacy and the KKK throughout the South was arguably more of a, a rhetorical attempt to push back on, you know, communist criticisms of like, look, America says they're all great, but look at look at how racist and collectivist and how much they're they're keeping down the working classes. Um, and so we're gonna we're gonna fight back against that to win the rhetorical battle. Like it's all it, it's this frustrating thing where the Maybe at any given moment, any time slice, some of the – call them like policy positions line up, but the reasons for those policy positions on each side are wildly divergent in ways that aren't just aren't just different but are like ultimately incompatible, like destructive of each other. Um, and – and so yeah, like it, so I, I mean, I am on record as saying that fusionist strategy was a mistake from the beginning. Um, didn't really accomplish much for libertarians, but gave kind of ideological cover for conservatives. Um, doesn't work now, but yeah, it is. I mean, it is bizarre seeing this. Like conservatism was essentially what we now call classical liberalism, and it's like it's like no, it was it was about maintaining kind of hierarchies against change and status against change. Well, we, we, it's easy to forget that, yeah, in the 19th century, uh, the, the English kind of roots of classical liberalism, uh, in, uh, was, you know, was a group of, of disparate activists motivated by a whole range of causes. Uh, they were motivated by the hatred for the corn law tariffs, tariffs on food production and export, um, which, contributed to the famine in Ireland, contributed to all kinds of you know maladies for uh, poor people in the in the British Empire. Um, it was early feminists who said, look, uh, they were trying to imagine a world with women's suffrage and they were motivated. So classical liberalism was motivated by 
a belief in individual liberty up against the the set of social institutions that were restraining people's right to trade corn, who got to vote, uh, the landed uh, uh, power of the established Church of England, you know, imprecation of church and state. So you have all these people who today were like proto-utopian socialists, feminists, free traders, uh, you know – all coming together to forge this thing called classical liberalism in the 19th century. And the people they were up against were the conservatives more often than anybody else. It was Tories. It was landed aristocracy, people who wanted to keep suffrage small to only propertied men. Um, conservatism and classical liberalism for most of the history of uh, the, those two movements as modern movements they have been antagonistic. They have been opposing forces. So what's weird in historical terms, utterly bizarre, is that in an American context, they forged an alliance of convenience. But it's important to remember, and it may be, I, you know, I can't really weigh in on whether it was worth it or not in the big meta sense. But we have to, that what I can weigh on, in on is that that is a historical oddity. And uh, it's important to remember that those were not, that was not some natural preordained fusion of impulses. If anything, you tell that to someone in the 19th century, uh, an ancestor of classical liberalism, they would look at you just, they would wrinkle their eyes up and be like, what the heck what are you talking about? How that, no, there's zero chance that happens. The other thing I think I'll mention is that uh, we have to remember that uh, we tend to overrate how important ideology or even policy is when it comes to to politics that much of politics is more primitive more it's more about red versus blue tribalism it, which is why it was you know people were kind of shocked in, in think tank land we're used to uh warring about ideas and policies and you know which policy is the most principled expression of our ideology and and, and so on but when it comes to the hurly burly of politics it's more primitive. It's like you are afraid of Hillary Clinton or you are afraid of Donald Trump and we're going to get you to vote out of fear, an exaggerated fear that this person is going to destroy what it means to be American. They're an ex existential threat. So vote out of fear. This doesn't have to do with policy. I mean, infamously, the Republican Party didn't pass a new platform in 2020. The platform, the policy platform was just, we'll figure it out as we go. It's whatever Donald Trump says it is. Um which tells you something about the deprioritization of policy and also downstream from ideology in the era. It's just owning the libs or uh, marginalizing the, the, the fascist. I mean, there is an impulse that goes the other way, though I don't think it's as severe at this point. Um, but that, that impulse is what drives American politics, not really policy and arguably not even really ideology, or at least it does, but we overrate how much of our politics is driven by ideology and policy. I, as a, as a preview for the next episode of Reimagining Liberty, I'm, I'm recording with Matt McManus, who has written about what he calls postmodern conservatism, the the rise of postmodern conservatism, which is very much about this and a, a conservatism that's kind of unmoored from the the commitment to truth and ideology and policy, and is instead just like kind of trying to build and maintain identities in the face of shifting material and cultural structures um and i think is very much in line with what with what you're talking about and it i guess i mean what it makes me wonder is looking at the state of things is there we talked about the right 
you know, and so there's there's a little bit of like uh, defining our terms. So there's the right, which we've said basically can't is is a, a hodgepodge, kind of an arbitrary grouping to some extent, but maybe some sort of you know attitudes coalescing around a, a dislike of change, a like a maintenance of status of certain groups and so on. But then we have conservatism, which is actually like my understanding is a relatively recent term. Um, and then you have the then you have the party and the party apparatus. So what's can you talk a little bit about like conservatism as not necessarily just a synonym for for the right? Does it mean something narrower or different? Yeah, as you get narrower, it's it's a more, if you will, useful and concrete definition, right? The most concrete one is, are you Republican? Which means, are you a member of the Republican Party? Are you literally a card-carrying member? Or do you vote for Republicans in elections? That's a very concrete, easy-to-identify thing. It, it, it still has some, you know, around the edges, it, it can get complicated because some people will vote for Republicans 95% of the time, but every now and again, they won't. So there's fuzziness at the edges, even of that most concrete definition, but there is something to anchor it. Then as you broaden out to conservatism, that's a particular movement. I, I think conservatism at this point is still defined by fusionist conservatism, The uh, whether that will be true in the future or in a moment of contestation, but it's this, this combination of a few impulses in, in the post-World War II era in America – um, of of right libertarians, of anti-communists, and of you know new Christian right folks, that kind of defines this particular um, movement. And by movement, I do mean that very literally in the sense that it's a network of institutions, of think tanks, of book clubs, reading groups, activist organizations, the Tea Party. The um, it, it is a network. It's an organ. It's a it is a mass movement, is a, a, a social movement, uh, which is a set of institutions, organizations that propel activism and change. So it's a little more – it is grounded. Like if you're part of the conservative movement, that means you – that historically meant you went to things like – you went to conferences. You went to CPAC. You were part of an organization, not just the – you didn't just vote for Republicans. You you were embedded in movement organizations. So it is still has some grounding, but it's a little more diffuse than a particular organization, Republican Party. Then you broaden that even more and you talk about the right. Um, we talk about right wing ideology or the new right. Um, that That's even more diffuse because you can have ideas that we identify as being broadly right wing without being part of any of these organizations or institutions or ever even voting. You don't have to vote to be. Um, right wing in your thinking. Um, but then also the right is more capacious in the sense that conservatism or fusionist conservatism isn't the only right wing ideology. The right includes more, more fringe ideologies as well. So you think of like uh, various fascistic or far right ideologies. Those are also on the right, but they're not necessarily conservative, though maybe those lines have been blurred somewhat because of politics for the last couple of years. But, you know, that the 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 right is a more even more capacious, less grounded and concrete concept. So that's how I tend to think of it. You think of the the right as the big circle in the Venn diagram and then you have conservatism as a smaller circle and then the GOP as a smaller but not wholly contained circle within so so even because there are people in the Republican Party who are not conservatives. Um 
as well. So think of it as you know a Venn diagram is is kind of how to conceptualize that. Do we have, I guess, a mechanism then for so th- this story that I we started our conversation with of you know it's hard to look at the state of the American right, maybe conservatism, the GOP definitely right now and say like, boy, these guys look like the place for pro liberty ideas to to take root and grow into you know libertarian policy change you know, they they seem to be instead a a party that has rejected democracy and liberal neutrality that has embraced conspiracy theories that has turned hard against social freedoms um and that has in many ways rejected often even explicitly in the more intellectualized side of it um free markets as you know as a threat to our way of life that needs to be reined in so it's it's more i mean you you end up with something that looks closer to kind of intellectualized fascism among say the national conservatives and the claremont institute people and so on so it's hard to look at that and say this is the place for libertarians to to get some work done um but then there's this story that you know like but there's clearly there are still people in the republican party there are still lawmakers who are are more of the classical liberal types more of that part of the the weird coalition um and and we can you know they can claw it back and so the question is given the importance of parties in in this in our governing system um how does how did the Republican Party lose control um, of like to the to the QAnon and the National Conservatives and the very anti-libertarian. And then based on that story, is there a meaningful way for them to for that the the Reagan Republicans to kind of reassert themselves? Like can that happen in this situation? I think to start, I'll note that um I think you're you're absolutely correct in the sense that um, we tend to, to overestimate how much success the kind of libertarian wing of the of the right of, of fusionist conservatism has had via right wing politics. Uh, libertarians have always been kind of the junior partner uh, among these factions, coalitional factions in the in the GOP, um, and. Often the rhetoric sounds more libertarian than the reality. And it's also notable that very often, just if you go through the history of the right, um, through people like Reagan and Buckley and Goldwater and so on, time and time again, you'll find them willing to sell out the stuff that libertarians value in the right-wing coalition. Limited government, laissez-faire, less spending, smaller you know, uh, less taxing, et cetera. Reagan rose to power in California in part on promises to crack down on anti-war protests. Exactly. He was the anti-free speech governor. So there's a free speech movement on Berkeley campus and Reagan leans. He can't officially fire anyone or control the administration, but he uses his public and he uses the bully pulpit as governor of California to get the president of the UC system fired. He threatens to cut the budget if they don't fire students responsible for the protests. So he uses the 
power of the state to lean on this institution to punish students exercising their free speech against the terrible unjust war, right? Like, uh, so if you're a libertarian, there's literally nothing to like about that incident, that that core incident. That's really the basis of his national appeal is that, oh, yeah, Reagan took on the hippies and they used the power of the state to crush free speech. It's horrible from a, a, a classical liberal perspective what he did. Um, so you have you have that there. Uh, despite a notional rhetorical commitment to limited government, he used the power of the government to crack down on speech. Or you take someone like Buckley, who, despite a notional commitment to free enterprise and um, a free society, you know, early on the National Review was a, a ardent supporter of segregation. Um, you know, one of Buckley's own articles during the fight for the 1958 Civil Rights Act, and I'll quote it here. I pulled this out. The central question that emerges is whether the white community in the South is entitled to take such measures as necessary to prevail politically and culturally in areas where it does not predominate numerically. The sober answer is yes. The white community is so entitled because for the time being, it is the advanced race. National Review believes the South's premises are correct. If the majority wills what is socially atavistic, i.e. equal rights, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then to thwart the minority may be, though undemocratic, enlightened. I, I would also just add, as we're on National Review, Frank Meyer, the the father of the libertarian conservative fusionist strategy, um, who politically advocated very libertarian things, when the civil rights protests were happening in, in the late 60s, became very interested in race and IQ stuff. Like – yeah. So what's interesting is that this commitment to freedom and equal liberties and limited government goes out the window as, as soon as there's a culture war to wage. Um, and, and you, you think of this in, in the current context, and we see that right now with, uh, um, in theory, being on the right, is, you're supposed to be in favor of decentralization, of local control of schools. And instead, as soon as schools, you suspect – somewhat exaggerated in an exaggerated fashion schools of teaching CRT or talking about the fact that, you know, people can be gay um, or trans uh, using state power, the state legislature to ban local schools from doing certain things or only being allowed to use certain curriculum, which is the exact inverse of what conservatives were saying about the importance of local control schools in the 1970s during the fights over sex education and the like then, which, which tells you what really matters Right. What the prioritization chart of the, the the beliefs and positions that really matter, it's clear that the libertarian valuation is just fundamentally different from the functional definition of the median conservative. Um, and you see that time and again, Reagan, Buckley, the current moment, the CRT panics and the you know don't say gay bills. Um, at some point, you have to say this isn't an exception that proves the rule. This is the rule. This is what you should expect to happen. Uh, with libertarian libertarianism as a nice sprink, rhetorical sprinkling uh, dusting on the top of a really terrible, um, hateful uh, – uh, uh, um, I don't know what the metaphor here is <laughs> – ice cream sundae or something. <laughs> what we've said is that even the quote-unquote classical liberal-looking Republicans historically, so our, our Buckleys and our Reagans and so on – um, were less pro-liberty and more reactionary than our, our kind of rose-colored glasses have them as. Um, and so maybe the 
the good GOP wasn't quite as good from a libertarian perspective as we remember it as. And the flip is also true. So the right wasn't as pro-liberty as we remember nostalgically looking back to a uh, hazily remembered past. But also, if you will, the left was more pro-liberty than than people on the right like to remember. So, I mean, the the the, the most concrete example of this is the way in which – we like to remember Reagan as the great deregulator because he fought with the traffic control union. But the reality is that far more deregulation was done under the Jimmy Carter administration than under, under Ronald Reagan. Jimmy Carter deregulated airline routes and ticket prices. Jimmy Carter's administration deregulated beer. The reason why you enjoy craft brews, if you're a big, you know, hops, IPA stand, that wasn't really legal prior to the deregulation of the beer industry under the Carter administration. It deregulated the FCC. It was the functional end of the fairness doctrine began under uh, the Carter administration. So if you really were concerned about smaller, more limited government and deregulation and excessive federal regulation of the economy, it's Jimmy Carter who you should be remembering fondly, not really Ronald Reagan, or at least not to the same extent. Um, uh, and yet, so we, we tend that that's a concrete example, but a more abstract example, uh, libertarians have historically been engaged in kind of left wing political and social movements. You think of Carl Oglesby, who was a, a founding member of the Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, it, he was a libertarian. Um, he it was anti Vietnam War. He, he didn't agree with the SDS on a lot of particular domestic issues. But he did agree with them on on opposition to, de- to segregation, support for uh, desegregation and civil rights, and opposition to the Vietnam War. And to him, those were the lodestars. Those were a reason to work with the left. Um, he was part of the left. I mean, to be on the left was because the left at the time in the 1960s was right on American empire and was right on racial equality. And the, the other stuff for Oglesby were not – it's not that they weren't important, but they were down the tier chart. He was willing to put to work with people who he disagreed with on economic affairs in order to end American empire and end Jim Crow segregation. And so we tend to also forget the extent to which being on the left meant being in support of individual civil liberties, in support of laissez-faire and, and so on. So it goes both ways. We exaggerate how much the right was a fa- – was a, a, the right was in working in the defense of the libertarian project and we diminish – how much the left was in favor of those same things. This is one of my objections to the continued fusionist project. And I'll say like fusionism is it's not we will work with Republicans. We as libertarians and like the public policy will work with Republicans because you can say it's perfectly reasonable to say on areas where individual Republicans or Republicans in general or conservatives are pro-liberty as libertarians understand it. We'll work with them on those things or where we think working with them will move the needle in a pro-liberty direction we can and then we'll do the same with the left and Democrats and so on and we will just keep our commitment but work with people where we think we can advance that commitment. That's cool. Fusionism is instead the choice to say we are going to see ourselves as of the right, part of conservatism, part of the GOP. They will be our primary people that we network with, that we work with, that we ally with, and we will see ourselves as joining with them in opposition to Democrats and the left. And this is why, you know, libertarians often complain like the, you know, an article run in the newspaper and it'll describe the like the conservative Cato Institute, right? And yeah. get like upset, like, no, yeah. we're libertarians. Yeah. But but like there is a reason, and it's this fusionism is the reason that 
most people think of libertarianism as you know conservatives it's because it's because we spent decades telling people we were um and working with it and i i think that one of the real concerns here is not just that working with like that we maybe overestimate how classically liberal the the right wing coalition is or we overestimate how many victories came pro liberty victories came out of of that strategy but i think what you just said we also tend to underestimate where there's pro liberty stuff among the american left because we get stuck in this we're with these guys against these guys and so there is this asymmetric evaluation going on and it mean which is just political tribalism right yeah. like that's what yeah. political tribalism is is like our in group is better than the out group um and so we lose out on opportunities to work with people who could move things in a pro liberty direction yeah well and there's i mean this doesn't let uh the kind of uh liberty movement off the hook entirely but this is it's worth noting this is downstream from kind of structural flaws in uh in in the American polity and the way we structured our politics. So we created a um somewhat by accident, this was not the intent of the founders, but we created a two, a system that incentivizes a two-party politics. Um because of first past the post voting, because of a variety of other kind of ways in which we structured our legislature and our government and our voting and elections and so on. Um but because of that, we have a a rigid two-party system. Yes, we have third parties, but they they uh, are notionally competitors with the major parties, and they'll never hold serious political power. doesn't matter. Every time someone starts, I don't know whether it's Andrew Yang or the founders of the Libertarian Party, you're always competing for kind of marginal influence right at the edges of the political scene. You're trying to kind of maybe shimmy one of the major parties in a particular direction a little bit. You're trying to um, – but this is in contrast to systems that are true multi-party democracies where third parties have real power, where because the two big parties tend to split the ma a majority of the population to form a functioning government, they need a third party coalition partner. And so third parties that are the size of the, the libertarian party that get like you know 5% of the vote every now and again um, have real political power and real political voice. In multi-party democracies. So we've constructed a system where it just pushes people into these red versus blue tribes. And then the kind of logic, the partisan um, uh, blinders get locked on and people just become unthinkingly in lockstep with it. It, it short circuits the critical parts of their brain. It discourages principled ideological thinking, encourages partisan tribal thinking. And so this problem is downstream from a problem with the structure of American politics. Again, it doesn't let us off the hook entirely, but um, you know, I think this is an example of, and, and people on the left will complain about that too. I mean, there are, there are, uh, left-wing third parties, um, you know, the the DSA and uh, Socialist Alternative. There's a bunch of who also similarly complain from the far left, if you will, about being forced into coalition with the Democratic Party. And then once again, I mean, this conversation is going on on social media right now on, on kind of more radical Twitter where it's like, hey, look, uh, we were told that if Bernie Stans came in from the cold and joined the Democrats, we're going to have this aggressive 
uh, you know, they're going to remake the American political economy. And instead, all we got was helicopter money. They just shoved the money to every old standard traditional democratic interest group uh, over the last two years. Where's the radical change that we were hoping for? So it's something that both libertarians and socialists, every third party person can complain about, um, which is that we are inadequately represented and too locked into a two party mindset in American in our American political system. So then given all of that, given that that depressing situation, discouraging situation, um, I mean, you you have written a lot about not just the you know the, the history of the American right, but kind of the evolution of American politics, particularly from this this on the ground perspective, as opposed to the the broader, you know, politics as the competition between ideologies perspective. Um and so given what we have seen happen to the Republican Party, where however friendly it was genuinely to classical liberalism, it is considerably less friendly to it now. Um, it seems to have been taken over by the base, and that trend looks to be continuing as opposed and so the 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 more classically liberal party elites have effectively lost control. Of the party. Remember, it wasn't that long ago when people like Paul Ryan, you know, party leadership, were would just wax on about eloquently about how much they loved Ayn Rand and they all their interns had to read the Fountainhead and um, whatever you think about Ayn Rand, that seems that was not that long ago when it was like cool for for GOP party leadership to to wax on. Right. You know, it's been. I mean, I think, <laughs> and I think that contributes to the idea that this can come back is that the the collapse into the Marjorie Taylor Greene Republicans has happened so quickly, like it, it appeared to happen so quickly that the Republican Party at the at the national level, you know, in terms of which lawmakers are getting picked and who the president is, collapsed into Trumpism, you know, seemingly out of nowhere. Um, but is there any hope? I guess that those people, as you know, problematic as they might be, those people being the Paul Ryan types can reestablish control of of this party and reassert themselves. Yeah, I mean it, it's – well, I, I think what I'll say is that um, it's important that even though that change seemed sudden, it was not. That what we're seeing is the final kind of stage of a long-running generational process. Um, first of all, you know, root this in the fact that this idea of a respectable fusionist right that's intellectual and sober and isn't engaged in conspiracy theories, again, was a fiction. That there was always conspiracism constantly happening in right-wing politics. You know, in the 1960s, John Birch Society is perhaps the most famous example, which included a plethora of influential right-wing um, uh, movement leaders. Phyllis Schlafly, Fred Koch, uh, the uh, – Tim LaHaye, left behind author, was a John Bircher. Um, so is very influential, promoted all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories about um about you know, Cold War era politics. Uh and there is a there is a bright red line from that kind of John Bircher conspiracism through the kind of Pat Buchanan-esque anti-New World Order, anti-globalist energy of the late 80s and 1990s. Through to the conspiracism that that you know is is recrudescent in Republican politics and, and right wing pro politics more generally today. So it was never absent, and now it's here. It was never as novel as it. But also the roots of 
what is a surge in kind of conspiratorial thinking of um, disintellectualization of conservative ideology that that has it's not it has it is a thing there is an uptick and there is a you know a trend in that direction um is that it took a lot longer it was not a thing that you know 2016 happens donald trump takes office and this thing is here now conspiracism is now um i'm reminded of a moment uh i think in, in 2008 you know when john mccain is campaigning and um um his uh he goes to a town hall meeting right and a questioner of the audience takes the mic and says something about how you know we we all know uh that uh, Barack Obama is a uh secret muslim he hates america he's going you know and 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 uh John McCain cuts her off and says no ma'am no ma'am you know i disagree with him on a whole variety of issues you know we don't we're, we don't see eye to eye on stuff but he's a, a good American. He, he rebuts the conspiratorial wing of the party. And, um, but the reality is that at the end of the day, there was always a willingness to play footsies with the conspiratorial fringe for the sake of trying to win victories. You know, that that's 2008. John McCain is a, a big proponent of immigration, comprehensive immigration reform. Well, we're coming right off the defeat of McCain's hope for immigration reform in 2007 at the hands of, well, two things, uh, right wing talk radio, you know, the Rush Limbaugh um, and Bernie Sanders from the from the radical left. They kind of worked together, if you will, informally to defeat comprehensive immigration reform in 2007. But there was this willingness to as long as they didn't embarrass them at town hall meetings to tolerate uh, nativism, ethno nationalist populism. Uh, uh, these uh, conspiratorial minded stuff, as long as uh, they, they, they want to ride the tiger, right? They can keep the tiger under rein and just, but they need their votes. Their votes are important. We don't want to alienate anyone. Don't speak ill of fellow Republicans, you know, Reagan, the first Reagan's first rule. Um, that attitude though, that those, those viewpoints, those habits, the conspiracism and the ethno-nationalist populism, it festered and grew. Because it was never meaningfully confronted or excluded. And so over time, so the difference between 2008 when John McCain will confront the conspiracy theory and say and, – and support immigration reform. By 2012, Mitt Romney is like, well, well, at, well he does this whole self-deportation thing uh, as a as a olive branch to the more you know, uh, nastier nativist – uh, nativists uh, in the in the in the Re- Republican Party um, by 2016 is just over hateful nativism coming from the GOP nominee. So that's a process. Uh, you take any given issue that we identify today with the surge in populism, reactionary populism on the right. So whether it's immigration or more basic, you know, local control schools or civil li- other civil liberties, um, it's a process that lasted really for the last 20 years, uh, give or take. Uh, we just finally kind of saw it out in the open in 2016 for a variety of reasons. So I think that's why I'd emphasize is that it's not sudden. It's also not new. Um, the question is, well, what can we do to change that? And that, that's hard. You know, as a historian, I can look to the past. Looking forward is a lot harder. What do you do to change this? And I, I, I'm, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm not sure there's all that much. Um, that can be done to return the Paul Ryans <laughs> and the and the like to the to control, in part because uh, the, I've written about this elsewhere. 
but the the political parties no longer function as modern political parties in the sense that they were designed in the 19th century. Uh, parties once existed to create discipline, uh, to limit the number of candidates so the candidates didn't cannibalize each other, um, to select the more mainstream points of view so that the most radical fringe of the parties wouldn't select the nominee who would then have a, you know, it would hurt their chances of winning in the general election. So parties used to discipline the number of candidates and the kind of radicalness of the views of those candidates. The parties are losing that function. It happened first in the GOP for a variety of reasons it is happening also in the, in the democratic party for a variety of reasons. Uh, I, we, we don't have, we, we can get into that if you want, but we don't have to here, but, there is no way for the Republican Party to discipline Marjorie Taylor Greene. It could have in the 1950s or 60s. She would have been warned out to the fringes of the party. She'd be gone. Um, she couldn't. She wouldn't be able to raise funds. She wouldn't be able to get on, have a national platform. She'd be just some marginal weirdo until the people of North Carolina or of, of Georgia voted her out. Same for Madison Cawthorn in uh, Western North Carolina. But today, they don't need the party. Um, in, in a sense. They're all Republicans in name only. They don't need to be Republican. They have, uh, they're able to raise their own money. They're able to get on, to get national news coverage on their own. Um, so I'm not sure the age of Paul Ryan doesn't exist, not because people with the views of Paul Ryan don't exist, but because the ability of the party to defend and propagate and advance those views uh, just no longer exists. That's a lost era in the in party organization. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul. Next time on Reimagining Liberty, I talk with Professor Matt McManus about the rise of postmodern conservatism. Here's a preview. Postmodern conservatism is distinctly marked by a kind of resentment-driven politics. Resentment is typically associated with political movements uh, on the left, going all the way back to somebody like Nietzsche, where Nietzsche would describe uh, these kinds of egalitarian movements as motivated not so much by a desire to actually help the poor, uh, but by a desire to kind of screw over the rich and the powerful, right? Uh, but I argue that you definitely also see it uh, on the political right with postmodern conservatism. But the kind of resentment is a little bit different, where there's usually this narrative of decline and fall. Postmodern conservative politicians will say, once upon a time, you possessed something. Status, you possessed certain privileges, you possessed a certain level of affluence, and that has been taken away from you. Uh, or maybe not even taken away so much as it has been granted by, to these groups, uh, which undermines uh, its kind of distinctiveness uh, for you. Uh, and so the argument then is you put your faith in me and I'll restore those kind of privileges and those statuses. Uh, and the associated kind of politics with that is, of course, saying uh, that'll take the form of pushing these people back down into their place, right? Or at the very least, undercutting their efforts uh, to democratize politics uh, and to create a more conclusive cultural environment. If you'd like to listen to my conversation with Matt two weeks early, consider becoming a supporter of Reimagining Liberty. Just look for the link in the show notes or head to reimagininglibertycom slash subscribe. 